and today I am going to talk about the book The Art Instinct, quote my favourite parts of it and discuss the intriguing insights in this book. Enjoy! Three of the hottest continuing topics in aesthetic theory are 1. The role of artists' intentions in understanding art 2. The aesthetic implications of forgery and authenticity and 3. The aesthetic status of Dadaist works such as Duchamp's Fountain. My purpose in what follows is to explain how arguments about these issues erupt from deeply held but conflicting intuitions that we all share about the nature and value of art. Evolution, I will demonstrate, is the key to understanding why these issues are so contentious in the first place. For those of you who have studied a bit of art history and aesthetics, um, I found that this breakdown of um, topics in aesthetic history were really interesting and he really goes into depth with these um, concepts but at the same time he also um, uses um, the theory of evolution as a retrospective to whatever he's talking about in this book you know theories and aesthetics and whatnot and I just found this really interesting because um, I've only got mostly a basic knowledge of art theory because my degree has been more practical based um, and yeah um, of course I know a lot about Duchamp's ready-mades many people do um, but he has some really fascinating insights um, into the ready-mades and he goes into detail about how his own um, art group that he started um, refused to exhibit his ready-mades which is amazing because now they're famous and they're considered art even though he originally didn't want them to be considered art he was trying to rebel against the that institution so i just found that really interesting to know a bit more background about the ready-mades and um, a bit more background in aesthetic theory in general of authorship begin with the uneasy coexistence of three different functions for language in human social life. These functions are deep, are doubtless prehistoric and appear spontaneously in human language using experience. Identifying these three functions can demonstrate why aesthetic theory finds itself locked in perpetual arguments about the status and importance of author authorial intention. 
One, the communicative descriptive function. Asked why we have language at all, most people will jump first to this reason. We tend to regard language seen as tool as a tool for ordinary descriptions of the world and personal communication. Two, the imaginary function. This is language as a creative medium for telling stories, fictional stories, including expressive stories composed in stylized forms such as poetry. Decoupling in is the term used by Tubi and Cosmides to describe this function. As I have already indicated in Chapter 6, children at a very young age spontaneously grasp in their play the differences between descriptive uses for the language for the, of language for the real world and decoupled uses in the make-believe or storytelling world. about different types um, of creative functions and language functions and he just goes into so much detail about so many different things and links them all together um, so because he the basis of this um, book is about the art instinct um, to human evolution and how art has evolved. He also talks about literature and he talks about music and he talks about poetry and he talks about literature and I find that really interesting and they, they all do relate on some level and um, yeah he just he likes this book I want to read several times because I think you need to read books like these several times to really fully digest them uh, intellectually but um, yeah talking about functions of language really does um, is really relevant into talking about aesthetics and visual art because visual art has its own language and visual art is developed through language so yeah, uh, this part I find extraordinarily interesting as well. The arts are not just crafts. I have argued that an often spine-tingling part of our ancient evolved response to the arts is appreciating is appreciation of technical achievement. That does not mean, however, that every instance of skill or craftsmanship, for instance, in the work of a plumber or an accountant, will be in itself a candidate for art. Most people understand craft in terms of its ordinary products. Weaving, pottery and furniture making are regarded as crafts because they use fibre, clay and wood to produce useful artefacts. Such craftsmanship requires genuine skill in the sense of minimal competence to yield passable results. 
but as usually conceived, crafts only require competence. Unlike fine arts such as painting, musical composition and poetry, which we think of as needing special talent, the British philosopher R.G. Collingwood accepted these commonplaces, but in the 1930s formulated the difference between art and craft in a way that made the distinction independent of what an artifact was made of or whether it was useful. Craft, Collingwood argued, is is skilled work purposefully directed toward a final product or designed artifact? The craftsman knows in advance what the end product will look like. The craftsman's knowledge is required by the very idea of a craft. An experienced cook following a recipe to make vanilla ice cream can be described as a craftsman not because he can anticipate every problem he will meet along the way, but because he clearly, not vaguely or generally, knows in advance what vanilla ice cream looks and tastes like, and knows exactly how to whip it up. In craft, Collingwood says the result in this way is preconceived, fully understood before being arrived at. Thus, a cook who tries to make ice cream and ends up with sweet cottage cheese may have inadvertently produced a delicious dish, but as pleased as we may be with the result, such culinary misadventures are not the competent exercise of craft. Art, in this respect, an entirely different domain. Like craft, art requires the exercise of skill and technique, but the artist does not have anything resembling the craftsman's precise knowledge of the end state. The finished artwork when he starts out. A proper art, Collingwood argued, is open during the creative process to a partial or complete change of direction or goal, open even to losing any sense of goal at all. The artist may change his mind, seize a new opportunity, or make a surprising turn. just craft and doing a fine arts degree I I thought why why am I not gelling with this Um, and I used to be frustrated when I'd create something and it didn't turn out the way I had envisioned in my head but as I've gone along with my arts degree I've been encouraged to accept that and accept that if something doesn't work out the way that you originally envisioned that's okay because that's part of the process of creating art it's not supposed to be what you originally think it to be it's kind of it's kind of I don't know how to describe it 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 has its own mind it's it's like a life of its own and you can't control it Um, and you're just kind of like conduit um, you know you you might have the tools to make it but you're not in control of the end product because um, I find that the end product is usually better than how you imagined it um, and I've of 
often had um, work that has become a happy accident. I've thought, okay, I want to make it this way, and then it, and then I think I've made a mistake, um, and then it turns out better and totally different to what I had thought what I had wanted it to be um, and I just enjoy um, the end product um, one example of this is um, the other day I was trying to make I was making a little kind of coffee table so I could read at um, my front porch and I had a little I had a red milk crate and um, I just wanted to flatten the surface because there's like holes on the top that you can't really put a cuppa on it will just tip um, so I put um, I put glad wrap over it and then um, I um, I put uh, plaster of Paris in the holes and uh, so in the end it looked really rough and it wasn't smooth and I thought about um, about sanding it down so it would look nice and polished but then I thought what the hell and I didn't know I couldn't find a red paint so I ended up deciding to take a risk and I got this fluoro pink paint and I painted over it and I decided not to paint in all the cracks and it looked really amazing um, sides and even though it's a coffee table it's also a work of art I could create several of them and exhibit them and they would look incredible so so there you go I was trying to engage in a craft I was trying to make something functional and in the end it did turn out to be functional but it also turned out to be art so um, so yeah, he makes a very valid point. Even though there are um, skills required, sometimes craft-like skills, to create a work of art, like learning how to um, use clay um, and a spinning wheel and all that, um, initially those are crafts, but if you decide to create a work of art, um, then you kind of... You, you can use those skills but you have to take a step back um, and be comfortable with making a mistake because often when you make a mistake in art um, it's better to go with it because if you get too perfectionist it won't work at all so yeah, I found that this part was very, I, I could relate and I agree with wholeheartedly. You will notice that people who cannot feel pure aesthetic emotions remember pictures by their subjects, whereas people who can, as often as not, have no idea what the subject of a picture is. They have never noticed 
the representative element and so when they discuss pictures, they talk about the shapes of forms and the relations and qualities of colours. Have you ever met anyone who, having seen a painting, could only remember blue rectangles, green mottled areas and pinkish brown smudges, but couldn't recall if they were cars or trees or people? Neither have I, but then Bell would just say that we move in the wrong circles. This loopy quotation, which describes people who feel pure aesthetic emotions as aphasics, who might be entertainingly explained by Oliver Sacks, shows how far aesthetic formalism has been willing to go in trying to shame people out of admitting to such pleasures as enjoying the representative, represented content of a work of art. notion of an aphasic I think that's how you pronounce it aphasic um someone who feels genuine aesthetic emotion um yeah I find that really interesting I've never really thought about aesthetic emotion I guess in that um context um let me just see that part again um so yeah pure aesthetic emotions um someone who remembers colors and shapes instead of the subject of a painting going on in the painting um no i've never i've never i've never um encountered somebody like that usually people talk about oh i guess sometimes people might if, if it's an abstract painting then you're you're drawn into the shapes and the colors because there's nothing else going on in the painting you have nothing else to discuss but the colors and the shapes and the way that the colors are blended um but if there is something going on in the painting um people are often usually drawn into the narrative of the painting um so yeah but i think that it's interesting that he talks about this as like a you know a way of shaming someone for taking pleasure in art that's a very interesting notion um it'd be in i think it'd be interesting to talk to this author and like discuss his book because i think that would be incredible um this this book was written in like the early 2000s oh published in um 2009 so yeah so things may have changed but i still feel this work has um, a timeless quality to it because these are these are theories um, and notions that um, are still being discussed and still being thought about um, and 
and yeah um so this was something this was a concept that was totally new to me and it really stuck in my mind um and uh i do feel like colors do express emotions um but yeah when you're looking at a painting and there's a narrative in it the first thing you, you look for is the narrative and I feel like that's like a um, narrative is like the strong oh strong theme in, in our evolution as a species because you know um, we're built on a society of stories um, whether they be true or whether they be fictional um, you know aboriginals um, their whole belief system is built on sharing stories um, they don't write things down and I find that very fascinating because the, the story may change um, but yet the joy of the storytelling is is preserved in, the, in that act whereas you know where you know in western civilization we're just really stuck on, on writing things down and i guess we we worry that we'll forget but there's so many ways to preserve a memory and writing isn't the only way you can also preserve a memory by um memorizing um like like you memorize poetry can memorize a story if you tell it over and over and over and over again um, and well, there's there's so many different types of memory another interesting part of this book I found is that he, he talks about sound sorry not sound um, well he does talk about sound as well but he talks about smell as being something that isn't really explored enough in art but has so much potential um, it can't really evoke emotion but yeah I highly recommend that people read this book because it is so fascinating <laughs> reading a little bit of the introduction to this book. These pages offer a way of looking at the arts that flies in the face of most writing and criticism today. A way that I believe has more valid, 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 validity, more power and more possibilities than the hermetic discourse that deadens so much of the humanities. It is time to look at the arts in the light of Charles Darwin's theory of evolution to talk about instinct and art. What can Darwin possibly tell us about artistic creation? To be sure, Darwinian evolution may explain our physical features, the function of the pancreas or the origin of our opposable thumb, but our love for Emily Dickinson's poetry backs Chaconi or Jackson Pollock's one number 31 in 1950. The idea that humans have a mating instinct perhaps, a maternal instinct maybe, but an art instinct? The very idea seems oxymoronic. 
instincts we tend to think are automatic unconscious patterns of behavior the spider web the spider's web that glistens in the morning dew was dictated by a generic code in the spider's tiny brain the the web may be a lovely sight to our eyes but its beauty is a merry byproduct of a spider's way of enjoying breakfast from the standpoint of either the spider or the human observer such pretty accidents of nature are a long way from how we normally regard works of art artworks are the more complex and diverse of human achievements creations of free human will and conscious execution art making requires rational choice intuitive talent and the highest levels of learned not innate skills every member of a web spinning spider species produces essentially the same web from the same code as every other member artworks on the other hand tend toward a personal expression that gives them dazzling variety no two monet water lily paintings are tragedies or brahms intermezzos are identical not even two performances of the same tragedy or intermezzo the arts are about particularity they bring together traditions genres and artists private experience fantasy and emotion fused and transformed in aesthetic imagination if you liked this review then you should check out the book the art instinct Beauty, Pleasure and Human Evolution by Dennis Dutton. If you like this podcast, then please listen out for more episodes. And also, while you're at it, maybe you could check out the Virtuoso Nine Gallery, an interactive virtual gallery with a personal touch. Go to www.virtuoso9gallery.ricksite.com slash my site. Thank you for listening.